COVID-19 and AIDS are, of course, different diseases, but those who've been on the front lines in the battle against HIV-AIDS see parallels between the crises. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. My guest today is Sharon Duke. She's the executive director and CEO of the Alliance for Positive Change. She joins us to talk about how the early years of the HIV-AIDS epidemic compare to now, and the challenges New Yorkers with HIV-AIDS and other chronic health conditions are facing with coronavirus. Sharon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for having me. So what's the history and mission of the Alliance? Well, Alliance for Positive Change uh, is a community-based organization that was founded in the 1990s in response to the AIDS epidemic with a central mission of helping New Yorkers living with HIV and other chronic conditions achieve health, housing, stability, and self-sufficiency. We do that through... um, access to medical care, uh, care coordination, peer navigation, workforce development, uh, supportive housing, food and nutrition, and a variety of other services. And really what we try to do is bring, um, meet people where they are through a harm reduction philosophy and provide an array of services that people can pick and choose to meet their needs at each unique time in their lives. So talk to me more about those needs and the challenges the individuals that you work with face on a daily basis. Well, Alliance is a, um, is a minority-run uh, social change anti-poverty organization, and the, uh, the majority of the people we serve are people of color, primarily Black and Hispanic New Yorkers, uh, facing multiple chronic conditions, Um, The majority of folks that we work with have both a medical condition, uh, HIV, hepatitis, uh, hypertension, diabetes, um, and um, and as well as a behavioral health uh, challenge, be it uh, addiction or mental illness. And I think the, um, the beauty of the Alliance programs is that we incorporate uh, peer educators who are people who have a shared lived experience um, as a resource connection. And, uh, and it's really about that one-to-one connection between people that, um, that I find is so powerful and really helps people make changes in their own lives, again, at their own pace. And, and so um, I think that we have worked very hard to be both responsive and respectful. I'm sure that really helps to earn trust. It helps to make sure these individuals know the help is coming from a good place. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, when, when COVID first hit, um, the folks that we work with at Alliance have so many health challenges and and social challenges, be it um, battling uh, poverty, food insecurity, housing instability, um, mental illness, addiction, trauma, violence, and um, and COVID on top of that. And I think that. Um, something that has was just so challenging for us is that 
our service model is really based on a one-to-one -one connection. It's a very personal interaction. And so COVID required that with very little notice, we had to go from this very high touch interpersonal service model to one um, that was largely telephonic and, um, and hopefully, uh, there were many people who didn't even have enough minutes on their phones, didn't have Wi-Fi, didn't have computers. So the telemedicine and the, the Zoom video conference support groups um, was not really a, um, an option for our folks. Um, so we, um, you know, we started calling everybody who was a registered client. We have over 6,000 registered clients. And what we were hearing is, um, apart from people being scared, um, they also were hungry and were having challenges uh, getting enough food. And so um, there has been a really wonderful and generous response from the um, from both the corporate and the foundation community and um, we were able to apply for and receive um, rapid response emergency uh, grant assistance that we have uh, really poured into primarily uh, food vouchers. We used to do food pantry and on-site meals and now we're um, delivering uh, pre-packaged meals and we're also mailing uh, food vouchers to our um, clients who are in the greatest need. What was it like for you as the founding executive director and CEO to have to pivot so quickly to be running an entirely different ship, if you will? Yes, no, I think it's, um, it's, a, huge, it's a huge challenge. And um, it's one that I am blessed to have a really strong management team with me. Um, who, uh, particularly my chief operating officer, Brenda Starks-Ross, uh, she and I have uh, been constant partners in navigating these uh, challenging and uncharted waters. Um, we also have a board of directors who has been um, meeting with me and Brenda on a weekly basis and really uh, providing both uh, expertise, resource, and guidance to us. But I think you know, the truth is that none of us have gone through this before. And, um, and we're, uh, I, the other thing that I think is happening is that uh, we're now three months in and people, the, the fear um, has turned to anger. Um, the isolation is frustrating. And, um, you know, and the interrelated crises of racism and healthcare inequalities in our country has just really risen to the top and is converging with the COVID epidemic, pandemic. And so I think that um, there's no question that the public health crisis of COVID is disproportionately affecting people of color, um, particularly African-Americans. Black Americans comprise 13% um, of our population, but um, sadly um, have suffered 24% of the deaths from COVID, according to the New York City Health Department. In New York City, Black and Hispanic people are dying at twice the rate of white people. What are the root causes of those disparities that an organization like yours 
is trying to combat and has been trying to combat for so many years now? I think, I mean, sadly, I think our nation has a, has a history of systemic racism that dates back to slavery. Uh, and then um, the inability of descendants of slaves to be able to pass down wealth through inheritance means that we've got generations of African Americans in our country who are economically behind and are not able to catch up. And then we still have um, uh, stigma and racist attitudes that play themselves out. And I think that the, the Black Lives Matter movement now um, emerging in response to uh, the tragic death of George Floyd and other Black men at the hands of police is it was a tipping point and it has uh, created, I think the, the isolation and the anger has turned to activism and the demand for change is, is present and it's now and, uh, and we all must rise to it. I think that in a lot of ways, Alliance um, has worked towards um, the creation of uh, an environment where people can feel safe and respected for who they are um, and not fear uh, rejection or judgment or stigmatization within Alliance. And Alliance has also created economic opportunities for um, for people who historically had been thrown away by society, uh, ex-offenders, ex-addicts, ex-prostitutes. And um, at Alliance, uh, we have our peer education and training program, and then we offer opportunities for people who graduate from that program to give back in paid positions, they start out as part-time. And I'm very proud to say that over 30% of Alliance's full-time employees are former graduates of our peer program who have left welfare and rejoined the workforce. So while we are not changing the external systems within our country, we are in a very small way, one person at a time, creating opportunities for, for positive change and treating everybody with respect and with dignity that they need and deserve. And that, um, that I think extends to all of the services that we provide. So um, even though COVID has required um, us to shut down and to go telephonic in many ways, we also have a syringe access program on the Lower East Side that has continued to provide harm reduction counseling and um, syringe exchange for people um, throughout the pandemic. Uh, we have also, we run a, a 90 unit supportive housing program in the Bronx that has continued 24 seven. And we run an outpatient drug treatment clinic that um, does both telephonic uh, telemedicine as well as in-person services in Washington Heights. So I think, you know, we are, um, we are doing our best to be responsive to the needs of our communities and, uh, but these are really challenging times. And I think, I know I'm, I'm 
may not be exactly answering your question, but the uh, as an as a nonprofit organization, we're really struggling right now because so many of our um, grants come from the government and the government has pivoted and it should to be responsive to COVID. But what that means is that services, essential services that we have been providing for communities affected and at risk for HIV, those resources are now being taken out of the HIV community and being put towards testing, treatment, and, um, and, and contact tracing for COVID. However, the, um, those grants are being taken out of community and being put into medical facilities. And so what does I that think, mean for you then? What's that, what is that going to mean going forward? What that means going forward is that um, even though we were successful at getting the PPP loan from the federal government through the stimulus package, it's a band-aid. And it's giving us uh, a lifeline for a couple of months, but it's not something that is going to sustain us into the future. And um, we are looking at the very real potential of having to um, having to do layoffs and uh, and curtail services because of diminishing resources from the government in, in, by way of government program grants. And how will that affect, though, the people you serve? If you're doing that, clearly, you're not going to be able to provide the full support that you've been providing. That's right. We're not going to be able to provide the full support that we've been providing. Um, you know, we do uh, we do participate in coalitions, and um, you know, our goal will be to sustain services to as many people as we can. And for those that we cannot, we'll, we'll try to connect them with another organization, uh, perhaps a community health center that may have support services as well. The other thing that we can do and will continue to do is, is to look for ways to partner with other organizations and services um, in order to be able to sustain the, the beautiful model of, of uh, care and support that we've worked so hard to create over these past 30 years. I would think, Sharon, the loss of government funding is not something that is short term. It could be very long term considering the economic impact of COVID. That is very true. And I think that, um, you know, not-for-profit organizations are small businesses. And so we, while we are nonprofit, that means that we have a mission to achieve in addition to having an obligation to achieve that mission in a fiscally responsible way. And so we're, um, we're looking to create service models that have reimbursement mechanisms attached to them so that we will be in a position to be able to sustain the services for the communities who need us. And um, I think that we're all struggling to understand and figure out what is that, um, what is that model in the context of a New York State budget that uh, has huge deficits and that is targeting the closing of some of those deficits on the backs of poor people through cuts to Medicaid. 
Um, the state right now is looking at strategies for reducing eligibility into some of the Medicaid care coordination programs, for example. And so from an advocacy perspective, we are fighting to, uh, to sustain this life's su sustaining service, but it's an uphill battle. And, and I think the uphill battle is complicated by the fact that we are all still um, in a large ways isolating um, in, in, uh, in separate places. And so it's very, very difficult to, to move forward in this, um, in this highly separate way. But that's, that's the challenge before us and it's, that's the one that we're gonna try to, to rise to. What are the parallels and contrasts between the coronavirus pandemic and the AIDS epidemic? Well, in the, um, in the early days of the coronavirus pandemic, I felt like, and I, I spoke to colleagues and friends of mine, many of us were feeling PTSD because it was very reminiscent of the early days of the AIDS epidemic where, um, where there was this mysterious disease that um, was uh, easy to catch, didn't have a cure, and, um, and you, didn't, you could not know if, by looking at someone, if they had it. And I think that those were some very uh, striking parallels. The other striking parallel was the um, the initial xenophobia and um, and bigotry against Asian communities, uh, blaming them for coronavirus in the same ways that um, that drug users and gay men were in the early days of the AIDS epidemic blamed for the spread of uh, HIV, and. Um, you know, a friend of mine, David France, who is the director of How to Survive a Plague, he said, and I agree with him, that in the early days of HIV, there was um, extreme grief over the loss of lives that were taken from us. And there was fear of of contagion and of that loss. And then that fear and that grief turned to anger and that rage turned to activism and that activism resulted in change. And I think in many ways, the convergence of the institutional racism, police violence and, the, um, and COVID has resulted in this fear turning to anger turning to activism and mobilization. And um, I, I think that our nation is at a pivotal point in our history and, um, and we're already beginning to see some institutional change such as the, um, the New York State law that uh, Cuomo signed um, to um, to ban chokeholds and to um, to have greater transparency in the police uh, police force, and I, you know I think that um, much we have much much further to go, and it's um, it's it's tragic that uh, that we had to lose so many lives to get here but now that we are here we must we must stand up and and make some some radical systemic changes what are among 
the key changes that you think we need to make and make quickly? I think that um, we need to create opportunities for um, for economic um, economic access. We need to address the the systemic healthcare inequities in our system. Um, we need to address homelessness and poverty and uh, and police brutality and racism. And there is nothing simple or short term in any of these challenges. But it's all of our responsibilities to stand up and to join forces and to find ways, both large and small, to, um, to move forward with these social and economic anti-poverty, anti-racism, anti-police brutality changes. Getting back to the Alliance's response to COVID-19 and your work in the early years when AIDS was really a death sentence, how has that shaped your response to this current crisis, looking back on what you dealt with during the height of the AIDS epidemic? There's no question that we've taken the lessons that we learned from the early days of HIV, and we've been able to apply them um, to, uh, to become a, a chronic disease management service agency. Um, I also think that the ways in which community-based organizations have historically partnered with both the government and with medical facilities to, um, to conduct HIV and hep C screening and to ensure linkage to medical care, um, that there is absolutely a imperative role for community-based providers to be able to do education around the signs and symptoms of COVID, helping people who are symptomatic to get tested if they don't have a doctor, to navigating them to that doctor if they um, and to ensuring that they don't go to the hospital if they don't need it, if they and um, and to also promote uh, prevention, and and then in the in the midst of all of that to address people's uh, basic needs, housing and food insecurity, um, counseling. So many people. I think that all of the skills that we have around HIV are completely applicable, and we have been applying them to help people. And in fact, it's um, it's really uh, we do uh, education and screening around COVID. We also assess for social determinants of health, and then we um, we connect people to medical care. And if they need special special services around HIV and Hep C, we do that as well. So it's an integrated approach. And uh, I think that that is something that is of critical importance to the community, and it's it's an imperative role that we play, in, and and can do more. And I'm hoping that the government will see that. And when the technology emerges, then there will be waivers for community-based organizations to be a part of the the testing for COVID in the same way that we are doing testing for HIV and Hep C. Speaking of testing for HIV, National HIV Testing Day is coming up at the end of June, June 27th. What does this year look like for an organization like yours and doing mobile testing? 
the truth is we have um, we have been utilizing our mobile van to do uh, HIV and Hep C screening, and we've also been using the mobile van um, to do peer delivered syringe exchange and harm reduction services. Um, and we've actually um, set it up so that there are barriers um, between the tester and the um, individual getting tested. Um, we provide masks and gloves to anyone who comes to us for the service. We take their temperature and do a COVID screening with them. Um, and I also have uh, worked very hard to obtain protective equipment for my staff and peers so that um, we can reduce the risk as much as possible for ourselves and for the people that we serve. But again, these are uncharted waters and um, we've never experienced a, a Gay Pride Month or a, um, a National HIV Testing Day where um, where we are so limited in the ability to uh, to get out and mobilize in person, which is what we're so accustomed to doing. Um, we were excited, though, for the Supreme Court ruling that extended uh, anti-discrimination laws to the LGBTQI plus uh, to include transgender and non-binary people. Um, and, and any other sexual identity that one has um, to prevent them from being discriminated against in um, through that ruling. And so that was very, very exciting. I think the timing for it to happen during Gay Pride was also wonderful. Clearly, we've come a long way in the fight against AIDS. The numbers, obviously, not what they were when you first started uh, in this area. But where are we still lacking? in the battle against AIDS. And I'm not talking about a cure, obviously a cure is what we all want, but where are we still lacking in making sure that people with HIV AIDS in this country are getting what they need and just keeping that forefront to make sure that communities aren't disproportionately affected? I think that, um, I mean, certainly the, the way to ending the epidemic is to ensure that people who are HIV negative stay negative and, they, and for high risk folks, we can do that through uh, PEP and PrEP, the pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, for people who are living with HIV, if we can ensure that they all have access to treatment and care, then we can achieve what's called community viral load suppression, which is uh, enough people in a community having um, uh, being virally suppressed and therefore they cannot transmit the HIV virus to anyone else. Um, but the, but the truth is that um, it's particularly for our low-income um, Medicaid populations, uh, unfortunately, the government is not investing in, sufficiently in equitable services for low-income and largely communities of color. Uh, and so, the, there continues to be disparities in access to treatment, access to medical care, um, and access to adequate information. And, um, and that's really our continued challenge. I think that uh, 
uh, one way that Alliance has been successful at, at um, bridging that gap is really through our peer education and navigation program where we have folks who have a shared lived experience. We provide them with training. We provide them with part-time and full-time jobs. And then they are the resource connectors. I call them my urban warriors who go out into communities to educate and um, identify folks, connect with them, and then link them to care. It's testing and treatment that is uh, really the keys for us. How can people find out more about the Alliance, connect with your services? Alliance.nyc is our website. Uh, we have community centers in um, East Harlem, Washington Heights, Lower East Side, um, Midtown, uh, um, the East Village, and supportive housing in the Bronx. Uh, 212-645-0875 is our phone number. And again, it's Alliance.nyc. Um, you can follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all that other good stuff. Uh, and, and hopefully, hopefully very soon we'll be able to reopen our doors and welcome you in person until that time we're doing work through the phone um, and, uh, and through video conferencing. And really, I just want to say we are here for you and, um, and we are here to help. All right, Sharon, anything else you uh, want to add before we go? I just want to thank you for this opportunity. Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Sharon Duke is the Executive Director and CEO of the Alliance for Positive Change. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow, and thank you so much for listening. Thank mm -hmm. you.